1: a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.
2: This is Copfather. I am Craig Brumell. Joining me today is Maddie Brumell, my daughter, and also producer and editor of our podcast, The Copfather.
1: I'm happy to be on the show.
2: So Maddie, I understand we've been getting a lot of questions.
1: Yeah, people are curious to hear some of your more personal experiences. A lot of listeners want to hear about what it was like back in your 51 days. So where exactly is 51 Division?
2: The boundaries of 51 in those days, it was a mile wide and it was about three miles long. It was the Don River going west to Jarvis Street and from the lake up to Rosedale. Very tiny. And in that little area, so much happened down there. It was a very violent division at the time there was like 75 known crack houses in that area it was all crack cocaine very violent prostitution serious gangs there wasn't that many of us working down there at the time it was kind of a division that the brass and politicians never wanted to deal with because our our clientele were the worst you know many mm-hmm. times we had people that were victimized whether it was a shooting or stabbing or a robbery and the victim was wanted by the police on some other outstanding warrant. So we never really got too much satisfaction down there when it came to really protecting people because a lot of times the victim was a bigger asshole than the guy person we were arresting. Oh, so gosh. it was like, it was, it was some place to work. It got known as Fort Apache. The media were continually after us down there. There was only one way of policing at that time, and that was pretty tough.
1: And didn't you think... um there was only meant to be a certain amount of years you should work in 51 division because of how bad it was it,
2: at that time, uh, this was the brass. This was like the command of the police service. They were suggesting that maybe you should only work five years down there at the maximum and then get out. It was, it was, uh, I've talked to many friends since that I worked with and we, a lot of times we've talked about how we survived it, you know, cause most of us did stayed longer than five years. And we just didn't want to make it look like we were suffering in any way. It was just a manly thing. It was stupid on our part. The coppers I worked with down there were incredible people, very loyal to the cause of just putting the bad guy away and really survival. I think at the time, there's probably about 180 of us working around the clock down there. Any given time, there's maybe only eight or 10 of us working because the shifts and days off and injuries, you, you really earned your pay down there.
1: Did they send you to any therapy or send any We didn't have any away? of that back
2: then. No, you had to uh, man you know up. You on your own? You know, or a woman up. You, you just had to uh, suck it up. It was not part of it, which led to a lot, you know, a lot of drinking. We were known as uh, a group that stuck together while we were working in after hours. There was a party or get together, what we called the choir practices. If you didn't show up, you better explain yourself the next day. So there was a lot of that, but it was just part of us sticking together and getting through that shift. So there was a lot of cocktailing going on at the time. The loyalty to the cause, you know, it wasn't the loyalty to the police service. It was the loyalty to fighting crime, and we depended on each other because, I mean, the station itself was in in the middle of a housing project, uh, Regent Park. At the time, it was the second biggest housing project, government-assisted project in North America. There was one in Los Angeles that was a little bigger. And for whatever reason they put the station right in the middle of the project. Sometimes at night we had to on the second floor where which were the detectives were, we had to turn the lights out because there's occasionally people would shoot at the building. And so we had to work in darkness so we didn't get lit up at night. So wow. uh, there was things like that. There were you know, racial riots down there, different communities. I remember one riot we had with the Vietnamese community. There was a lot of gangs. Most of it was people coming from around the city because it was an easy place to deal drugs, because of the the way the especially in Regent Park or Saint Jamestown, one of the most populated areas in North America. I think there there were 21 high rise buildings. The, the smallest building was like 25 floors, but it was all housing. It was like crack houses and prostitution. So. It was a it was a tough place to work. It was one of a kind. In Regent Park, we had uh, three-story buildings, apartment buildings. So we would take a building at a time. There'd be four of us. We would only go anywhere in fours. So we had a no-go area. So the no-go rule was, if there was two of us, we wouldn't go in. We needed four of us because of just the uh, the danger side of it. Mm-hmm. We had something called a stooge play. So we would take two of us on one end of the building and two at the other, literally go up, bang our... our Night sticks up against the railings, and they would all go to the third floor and we'd all corner them. So, we, we somebody came up with a term, they were all acting like the three stooges when we were catching them. So, we came up with this term called the stooge play, which we used in court as evidence doing the stooge play. At the beginning, got a lot of laughs, but that's that's what we were doing, that's all we were doing. It there was no community based policing going on, and after I became president, I got to protect police officers across the city. I was able to go all over North America to talk to other police agencies and 51 was one of a kind. There might've been an occasional place like in New York City or Los Angeles that you could compare it to, but 51 was on its own. It was, the description of that place was different than policing anywhere else that I came across after I got to expand my experience by running the union.
1: So, you've told me in the past that 51 Division is the punishment division. Yeah. So, why were you sent there at such a young age?
2: Did you just I, Myself and another officer came right out of the police college. I guess How they won. I was 21 wow. when I got down there. So, myself and the other officer were right out of the police college. So we were we were looked upon as being suspicious right off the bat. The coppers that were working down there like why why are these guys here cuz it was the punishment division. So if an officer messed up anywhere else in the city, they would send him or her to 51. I guess they wanted everybody to teach them lesson? We never did understand that. It was known as the punishment division. It was called the armpit of the city, both exterior and interior. The station house we had was notorious for rats cockroaches. It wasn't, it wasn't a very nice place to work. We never understood why they would send all the, what they would consider bad cops or cops that screwed up. I guess they just wanted us all together so they didn't spread like what, you know, the cancer around the city. I, we never understood that, but that went on forever. So when I got down there, they, I guess they tried something new. I was being viewed. Okay. Is he, is he a plant? Is he a, you know, a rat? Like what's going on? And uh, myself and the other officer, we had to really prove ourselves to the, to the people that were working there that no, we're just, for whatever reason, they sent us from the police college.
1: Wow. One of the biggest questions that I've always been asked people that I know, people that know you, my friends, they always want to know, have you either been shot at before or have you ever shot someone?
2: Yeah. Shot at. Yes. I've never had to shoot somebody. I've been in the position where. Almost every call down there, you would take your gun out and keep it either in your pocket or to your side. That happened a lot, but that was with all officers down there. There was a lot of respect from the, we'll call it the bad guy down there for, I mean, 51 had a, a reputation of being very tough. And if you mess with one of us, you mess with all of us. And I, it was kind of a respect from, from the street level, especially the gangbangers down there. They they probably didn't want
1: you to be on their bad side because they they want to get away with some stuff.
2: Absolutely. And we saw that over and over again. I got a chance to interview one of the top reporters from the Toronto Star, Philip Maskell was his name, who really was the, he had the copy for a newspaper that really had a negative view of law enforcement, just not 51. And I think it was Philip that gave us the nickname Fort Apache.
1: What does Fort Apache mean?
2: So Fort Apache is kind of like a fort where in the old days, the Indians would go after the uh, US military. I'm talking stuff that happened 200 years ago. I mean, you can Google it. There was another place in New York City that was called Fort Apache, a a, a precinct. And what happened was when they started calling us that, the respect started coming from the the bad people. Like, Like they just didn't want to mess with us. They actually wrote a song about it called Cherry Beach Express. And we were always being accused of taking people down there and beating the crap out of them as coppers. And it was just totally false. It was just like, we didn't operate that way. One of the reasons I ran was because all this grandstanding going on, giving us this reputation that was just false, right? You know, being anti police, even back in the 80s and 90s, was a multi billion dollar industry. People make a lot of money off, you know, whether it's the media, special interest groups. I'm sure this guy that wrote the song about the Cherry Beach Express made money, and it was just totally false. None of that was, you know, we, we we're above all that.
1: You Ever been injured on duty?
2: Yeah, several times I was off. A lot of officers got injured down there, and a lot of officers were always off. I had an incident, uh, myself and my partner at the time, Bill Austin, Ozzie. Uh We got caught in a fire. There was a fire in, in a, a rooming house in Regent Park, and we We went in, we were told people were in there stuck, It knocked both of us out, smoke inhalation, and we probably shouldn't have gone in. But again, that was the dedication that we all had. I remember coming to and and seeing the ground in rubber boots and it was the firefighters carrying us out. Uh, Broken ankle. I stuck myself with a dirty needle during a search warrant for crack that that played on your mind at the time because it was such a mystery back then. The other thing was, we had so many diseases down there. There was, at the time, big TB outbreak. We were ground zero for the HIV pandemic when it first started in the late 80s. And we had a booking hall down there for prisoners that would get lodged to go to court the next morning. And on it had the person's name, what the charges were in their cell number. It was a board, a white board. And then if they had any diseases of any kind that you could get by being around them, there was a red mark on the side of the board. And most times that board was full of red marks.
1: And I know your favorite movie is The French Connection, and there's a very intense car chase scene in it. And I was just wondering, have you been in a lot of car chases yourself?
2: Yeah, a lot of car chases, but they were short because our division was so small. You know, it was only a mile long. So by the time we started, we were out of the division into another division. So there was a lot of car chase, a lot of foot, foot pursuits, we called them.
1: Actually chasing after people.
2: Yep. When we were on the foot patrol, we had a, a squad in uniform. And our only job, our only function was to go after the crack hits. The crack was so bad that most of the dealers were not people getting rich. They were dealing the drug for their own habit. It was real junky division at the time. After a while, I had spent about 10 years down on 51 at the time. We're on the foot patrol. We had a team of senior officers, and then we would get the new recruits out of the police college, and they'd send them down with us for six months to learn the ropes. Down there, what you learned in six months would take you two or three years to learn anywhere else. We would go to the rookies who are all in good shape, and we'd say, uh, okay, put your uniform on, then go back downstairs after we prayed and put your running shoes on because we knew during that shift there was going to be a lot of foot suits. at that point with most of us with 10 years on or 12 years on we got tired of chasing them so we'd have the rookies chase them down once they took off from us mm-hmm. and usually it was for gun offenses crack the dealing it was at that point it was like shooting fish in a barrel it was everywhere down there we would end up with more arrests for crack cocaine than the the drug squads and the, we were in uniform at the time on the foot patrol so it was our only function. We weren't doing any community-based policing. It was all enforcement with the drug trade throughout the division, not just in an area like Regent Park.
1: What was the biggest bust you were involved in? Like how much cocaine was there?
2: It was all crack. You know, we, we, would, we would get excited if we got somebody with an eight ball. and An eight ball was like 3.5 grams of crack. We never got involved in the real big operation because they take months. We didn't have that. We were doing nickel and dime Okay. from shift to shift. It was, at the time, we would arrest somebody that had an eight ball on them, which is a lot of crack. And they had a chunk on them, which was a gun. It was a good day. That was what we're, for years, that's what I was concentrating on down there with a phenomenal group of coppers. And we had to depend on each other. We, we had a term watching year six, which means that I would watch my partner's back and he or she would watch my back. I mean, we were survivals. Because the bad guys, I think the brass, I think everybody feared us down there. They didn't know how to handle us. We were number one in arrests. We were number one in a lot of categories. We're the smallest division, but we're always at the top. We made a lot of unit commanders look good because of the numbers we were bringing in. Like I said, there was a lot of good coppers down there. they are the people that you wanted showing up if you needed help. That was the bottom line. The coppers, what I was told about the coppers today compared to before is in the past, we stuck together really stuck together. We were like a team. And there's more individual policing on today. Whether whether it was male officers, female officers, black officers, Asian officers, you were 51. Didn't matter who you were. We we supported each other as if we were one. Didn't matter your sex or color. We were all in this together. We need to survive. We need to go home every night. We all got along. There was no issue. I, I get told now, it's more of an individual sport compared to a team sport. It's the best way it's been described to me. You know, the, the world has changed. I don't think I'd be a cop now if I had an opportunity to join now. I would either would have been fired or end up in jail probably.
1: Yeah. I've had friends that uh, want to become cops, and then they go to my dad being like, oh, like, give me some advice. What's the best advice you give me? And his best piece of advice is, don't become a cop <laughs> yeah.
2: or, or join the fire department. Oh yeah. Everybody loves a firefighter. Get a calendar. <laughs> Get a calendar. Get a calendar.
1: Uh um, do you think 51 division compared to back when you were a cop and now do you think that community's gone any better?
2: Yeah, it has. Well, they they pretty much tore the whole area down and they built these high-rises. But if you look and you know the uh, the geography of it, the territory for the gangs is still down there, but they're just Very nice building. I I went down there the other day. I couldn't believe what they'd done. They they demolished that whole area, built these really nice condo buildings, put in some extra community centers, and at the same time, there's headlines of shootings and drug dealing in Regent Park still.
1: Have you ever feared for your life in any situation?
2: I think we all have. I think where we were at that time, just about every shift, there was a moment where you're like, okay, we got to put our heads together and if a copper said he wasn't concerned at any time then they're they're liars you know it was always in the back of your head cuz it was a it was a bad spot to work and i think just knowing i had great backup and quick backup helped you know if a, if a, a call came over for an officer down or assist what we said assist the pc a 1033 that was the code if you didn't rush to get there we would have you removed from the station cuz we couldn't depend on you It was, that's the way it was. It was tough. You had to be a tough hombre to survive down there.
1: And you are 21.
2: Thrown right to the wolves.
1: So you've told me a lot of stories. What would you say is a story that sticks out in your head the most?
2: I don't think there's one. I think there's multiple. I never got used to seeing how much suffering there was with the uh, homeless. You know, I was from Oshawa. Never saw any of that came on and Oshawa at the time, very family oriented it never saw somebody living on the streets or anything like that. Never saw drugs, prostitution. You know, we had, we had something down there where we had so many homeless and alcoholics and the crackheads. We would have a, what we called the drunk wagon. It was a paddy wagon and we take turns every day, every shift and go around and get as many, especially during the winter. Piling as many as we could, usually a dozen, 15, into the paddy wagon. And there were people on the street that were freezing, that were hungry. This was totally illegal. And we would gather them up, take them to the station, put them in what we called the bullpen, which is the big cell area. We wouldn't charge them because normally it would be an offense, you know, drunken in a public place. We wouldn't, we'd give them a ticket, but there'd be no fine on it. And we fed every one of them.
1: And gave them a place to sleep.
2: Gave them a place to sleep, and we would make sure they were fed. We had a place called the Newtown Restaurant that had great cheeseburgers and fries. We had a, a kitty, a slush fund, for the people we would take off the streets and needed assistance. No other place did that. I never got used to that. It was the negative side of society. I had some uh, sudden deaths. I had some suicides, a lot of suicides down there at the time. Jumpers couple of bad uh, subway jumpers. We had a place called the Bloor Viduk, which is a large bridge, very high, and there was a lot of jumpers off that. You never got used to that. I had a call once for a place in South Regent Park, a place called Blevins Place, very high, 13-story building. Regent Park was the only place that actually had a number 13 floor. So we got a call for a homicide on the 13th floor lobby. Get there, and there is this person, uh, didn't even recognize the person. There was blood everywhere. Ceiling, walls, it was everywhere. So we thought we had a homicide, and then we recognized it was, a, at the time, it was a, a, a prostitute who's a transvestite. No one on the streets. We thought for sure homicide, get all. and then they, they, they did a quick autopsy. The person was uh, alcoholic, crack cocaine, glue. Glue sniffing was a real problem down there also. And this person, the liver exploded, and literally blood and guts came out of every opening Oh that you had gosh. on your body, and that's what killed this person. Bottom line is the liver exploded, and there was blood everywhere.
1: And weren't there like footsteps in the blood because there was other people, yeah, people on were, drugs that didn't even notice. Yeah, that there was they blood went up there. Ground?
2: They went up to the 13th floor to do their crack, and there were witnesses to that. We never found them. This person was not murdered. It was just a, a sudden death from the wear and tear on the body over the years. When the coroner came back, we were all shocked. Things like that. Don't forget that.
1: Who Tell the story about the guy who put his girlfriend into the mattress or like ate her.
2: So I wasn't on that call. That was other officers that got a call to the Winchester Hotel on Parliament Street and they were just doing a residence check. It was a rooming house at the corner of Parliament, Winchester. The owner of the building came to these two officers who were foot patrol and said, I smell Javix. I smell a lot of Javix upstairs. And they're like, okay, so went up, followed the smell to this, it was just a room opened it up and there was buckets of Javex all over the room. It was there because they eventually found behind a bed was a torso, female torso. The Javex was there to kill the smell of the dead body because the body had been there for a long time. Body parts were found all over Regent Park eventually, full homicide investigation. There was accusations that he may have been eating part of her also. And it turned out the person died of natural causes. It was a girlfriend of the guy that lived in the apartment. He didn't know what to do. So he was just charged with, uh, I think, indignity to a body. It was never a homicide. How
1: many years is that in prison?
2: I think four or five, maybe. God, you
1: think more. It's
2: it's Canada, Maddie. (laughs) People don't go to jail here.
1: Oh, boy. Um, In this day and age, what is the biggest misconception from the general public about the police? Say.
2: I would say more today, but it's always been around. Is that we're all racist?
1: Even back then, when you were 21, oh yeah,
2: I can only speak for when I was at 51. We had a well, I will call a high clientele list. It was a very black community, and we were always accused of racist and targeting certain communities. But we—that's all. We, that was the population down there. That was never taken into consideration. We would come across the black community more often. And a lot of good people that lived down there too, that just couldn't make it. So of course our numbers would be higher when dealing with the black community, cause that was the population. And, and, and to fault of the, the police service, we were mainly all white male officers. That was just the way it was set up. So we were all known as just being racist and it's just wrong. I never, we never sat around ever and said, you know, the start of a shift, we're gonna target a certain community. We targeted criminals. If you wanna call us racist, we're a racist toward criminals. We didn't care what color or sex you were. If you're breaking the law, we're gonna come after you. That was our job. So the, the, right now, more than anything is that if there is an incident involving a certain community, then it's blanketed and then all officers are considered racist because whenever they demonstrate on a police headquarters or they ride in the streets, it's not about the one incident. They're demonstrating against the entire police service, which is just not true. Whether I worked at 51, ran the union, or know a lot of police officers now, it's, it's not that, that is not the case. What has to be looked at is that certain communities have to be better taken care of, more jobs, better housing, give them an opportunity to make their lives better. And that has nothing to do with the police. Those are politicians. The decision makers of society have failed certain communities, not the police, certain people, whether it's City Hall, the Ontario government, federal government, they have failed certain communities for the last 40 years.
1: So you were a street cop for 19 years. What made you run for president of the police association?
2: Uh, It was personal and uh, a bigger picture. I, I was sick and tired of the way the police officers were being treated. We've talked about a lot of it, you know, everybody being painted with the same brush when it's negative. I went through some issues at 51 where we were accused of a bunch of stuff which was completely false uh, for a number of reasons. We had a ma- major lockdown. We refused to work down there because of the way a couple officers were being treated. And it was a combination of a lot. I just wanted to change things so that what I went through personally and what I witnessed with my other cohorts, Mainly I just got fed up and I said, you know what, the only way I'm going to, instead of just talking about it, I'm going to run and try to make changes that way. And I ended up winning. I think a lot of officers knew that, you know, the, the people that worked in 51 just never had a chance when you were accused of something. A lot of it was what we called the box job. It was to box the officer in on false allegations to either get them to quit, retire, suffer mentally Uh, and that was always coming from the brass or city hall or the media. And I wanted to even out the score. I wanted to make it fair for survival of the front lines, mainly the frontline officer, the backbone of any police service. And that's why I didn't expect to win. I just thought I'd try it. Instead of just complaining, let me put my words to action. I ran and end up winning. And you know, as they say, the rest is history. When I won the presidency for the union, I had no background. I didn't know the first day up there, I was like, what do I do now? Like I didn't think I was going to win. And the person I beat was the incumbent who'd been up there for a long time, but there was like a 20 year gap. So that I, I think the troops wanted somebody younger who was living the problems at the time. I tell the story. I was so young. I had the baby seat in the back of my car and it was your baby seat. <laughs> Most of the presidents were grandfathers before me. You know, I was 37 years old. So I took the mentality of working the streets into the boardroom. That was the only experience I had. So I got a question once from a reporter. When I said that, I said, I took that mentality up against the bandits in the street and I put it into the union boardroom. And the reporter said, so you treat everybody like crackheads? And I said, yeah, you can say that. That's that's how I went into it until you proved otherwise. I don't care if you're the mayor or whoever you were, prime minister, premier. I guess I treated it as a crackhead at first until I learned to work and trust you, and that was the only experience I had dealing with the uh, uh, the junkies on the street. And it worked. There's no doubt about it. It wasn't just me. It was my board, and we were we were. Fe- There's no doubt we were feared, and we're as feared. There as we, the coppers were in 51 during the Ford Apache days.
1: They called you the men in black.
2: <laughs> that was the men in black. I mean, the men in black came from uh, the day I won, the day after I was ordered to turn my uniform, my gun, my badge, everything in by the chief at the time. We found out later, they just didn't want me to be associated with the uniform. So they said, they, they, I guess they thought I was going to be wearing my uniform around all the time, which I wasn't going to. I was glad to get out of uniform. So they ordered me to turn everything in. And then the rest of the, my board they had to turn everything in. So at the time, unfortunately, we were going to a lot of funerals and memorials. As a board, we wanted to show uniformity. Went out and bought black suits with our Union crest on the breast, left breast, to go to the memorials. And whether it's good or bad, at the time, uh, the Fifth Estate, CBC, were doing a uh, show on me. And we're a board that was sitting in black suits So that's where that came from. They used it as something else, right? I'll be honest with you. It it scared people unnecessarily. They were like, you know, better take these people serious, my board at the time. And a lot of that happened by accident that we weren't involved in. We just wanted to make a uniformity. We went to this as one group, as a board of directors, representing our, our, our members. You know, as long as we're doing our job, you can call us whatever you want. And that's how that came about.
1: So, one of my girlfriends that I'd known my whole life when we were like 18, she watched The Fifth Estate on you and she'd already known you for like 18 years. And she turns to me and she's like, Maddie, like one of the guys in the video looked like he was going to cry talking about your dad. (laughs) Like, and then she was just so afraid (laughs) for no reason because of that show. Yeah. Like, they pictured you as this horrible, bad guy. yeah, And it convinced even her, someone who knows you.
2: You know, but after that show, the so- police association gained a lot of respect. People were just scared to death of us. So we end up getting a lot of what them. we wanted. And, you know, that incident where uh, there was a deputy chief that was crying. I think the question was, are you afraid of Craig Mill? The answer mm-hmm. was yes. And, uh, you know, the phones were off the hook that night when it aired. The next day I was called in. They wanted to investigate criminally for extortion. They said, you must have somebody there. And I went and I said, you know, I don't know why he's doing, we have nothing on that. We're not working this guy. We don't, he was a zero as far as we're concerned. We don't know why he's doing it. And they were feeding him stories about us that just weren't true. But we did let it ride. I was getting calls from all over the world about that. You know, how did you make your boss cry? (laughs) On national television. So, by letting it ride and not really talking about it,
1: letting people's minds run wild. Let it
2: run wild. And I realized that's what they would do to the copper on the street. So, we reversed it. You know, a lot of coppers would suffer. That changed after that. Mm-hmm. And that turned out it was an accidental plan. We didn't plan it that way. We didn't know this person was going to do this on national television. And we we sat back and, as we said, a lot of times we let things ride. They're accusing us of all kinds, following people, targeting enemy, an enemies list. There was all these things being said about us. We wouldn't say anything. It, it scared the shit out of everybody by us not commenting, denying it, whatever. We just said, okay, let's see what happens, right? Well, we ended up getting what we wanted. They tried everything they could to shut us down. You know, there was uh, a police service board in city hall thought we were bugging their phones. And I remember the- Everyone was paranoid. (laughs) The vice chair of the police service board demanded that they pay to get the offices debugged because they thought we were listening. First of all, it would have cost a fortune. We weren't doing it. But we let it ride. We didn't say anything. And they spent- couple hundred thousand dollars, debugging their offices and their phones. Of course, they didn't find anything. And we had no intention of doing anything like that. But there was that fear. It was the optics that we were that benefited us. And again, I took that style from working the streets and putting in the boardroom. You know, you never you never told the crackheads when we were coming. We never told them about the projects. The people walking around with guns, we would just show up. And that's what we did. That's what I did running the union. And when we showed up after stories like that, I mean, it it changed. We were being treated with a lot of respect after that.
1: It falls in your court.
2: It was many, many times.
1: And there was one thing that, if you're able to talk about it, because I find it just like one of the coolest stories is when you first became president, you went into your office and there was a massive bouquet of flowers. Yeah like a horseshoe bouquet of flowers Yeah, and you were wondering who is from. And then you look at the card.
2: The second day I was there, I came into work. It was a horseshoe. Like when the person wins the Kentucky Derby and they put it over the horse, this thing had to cost a lot of money and it was, you know, congratulations for winning. And I looked at the card and it said from one president to another. There was, I knew the name, and it was a guy I was in grade school with. I think he dropped out in grade nine. He was the president of the Hells Angels.
1: Do you think he meant it in a nice way, or I see you mean president? Very nice,
2: very nice way. Never talked. I th- I think the guy was murdered after a while. But oh. no, it was kind of those things that happened. And you know, I I said it's a beautiful bouquet of flowers split it up and take it to as many seniors' homes as you can and distribute these things, but get them out of get the building. Rid of it, yeah. That was things like that were happening that, uh, you know, uh, it, it was it was strange. But again, if I didn't work in the Notorious 51, I wouldn't have become the president. And as they say, the rest is history. Were you
1: ever worried bringing things back home? And by that I mean, were you ever worried for your family, for us?
2: Yeah, No, there was many times we had, uh, my second or third year in, there was a a magazine and I was on a roll at the time protecting police officers. And this was a left-wing rag. And they put a picture of our house and the address in the magazine. So for a while there, we had around-the-clock security police officers.
1: And at the time you had three young
2: kids. Yeah, they didn't care. And so that was probably the downside of this. We did hunt people down for that, I can tell you that, without getting into it. If anything had happened, they were, they were there in seconds. So
1: Did anyone ever get close, do you think?
2: No, because after a while, the truth of the matter is, people thought we were running the organization as the mafia. And after a while, I we would say, listen, the, the least of your concern is the mafia, if you piss this off. There was so much respect for us when I left, not just me, but my organization. People weren't going to mess with us because, you know, I had an army of 8,000 police officers, and I used it. You know, you guys were well protected. It was just after they put our home address in the magazine. That, and I wasn't worried about what was going on, me running the union. I was worried about all the bad guys that put away as a copper, right, also. So I was at a conference in Ottawa. Your mom called me. It was about 11 o'clock at night and said, I think somebody's breaking in the back door. I think somebody's getting in the house. I said, okay, just get everybody in a bedroom. And I called the local division where we lived. I called it, the front desk. And I said, listen, I'm in Ottawa in a conference. It was a police conference. My wife's home alone with the kids, and she thinks somebody's breaking in the back. And our address was flagged. I said, just send a car over. But I said, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I can't get there. So if you can send a car, just one car over. And about, boy, it had to be five minutes later, I get a call from a very good person. Friend of mine who was working in the division who I used to work with in '51, his name was Dave Keats. Yeah, we think it was a uh, a raccoon. Okay, so I said, "No, listen, Dave, buddy. I think you know I owe you a beer." He says, "Bro, there's 30 cars on the street. There's 30 police cars. We can't get out of the street." He says, "They came from like five divisions." I said, "Dave, I didn't. That's I asked for one car, two a two person car to go over." He says. No, once the call went out. So I knew we were protected. You know, My job was to protect those who protect others, and those others protected me. And okay. it went both ways. So that was an example. I think your mom was very embarrassed. Thank God the I was The whole street Ottawa. started talking. Oh, yeah. No, I was like...
1: <laughs> Gossip you know, Central. Oh, yeah.
2: It went crazy after that. So
1: They probably thought something now, really you know, bad know, To be honest, God.
2: our neighbors were great. Never had a problem with our neighbors. They were very understanding and... We were, I mean, we were front page news all the time. I'm sure they're sometimes wondering like what the hell is going on. But anyways, it worked out for the best.
1: Yeah. So to clear the air, you were never corrupted. Did you know anyone in your division in, that was? In
2: 51, no. But after I took over the union, I did come across some. And but, did you just
1: know it? Like you could sense it or is it, no, they they're I, obvious I would, about
2: it? I, there was officers that were arrested for corruption after I took over the union that Certain people would come to me, play me tapes, show how dirty they were.
1: And why you know? did they become corrupt? Like, did other people oh, have something on them? Number of, of reasons. They wanted you to know, be-
2: substance problems, financial problems. That's like any other job. That's you know, it just doesn't police. It's not just policing. It's you know, that's what happens. Being the union president, I could guarantee you going to jail if I didn't support you or get a lawyer for you. I could almost guarantee you're going to go to jail. So there was a couple of times we just didn't support people. When I worked at 51, it was never like that because there's never money. Like you got to remember all the drugs were for habit, all the drug dealing. There was never a lot of money hanging around and like that, which just, and we wouldn't put up with it. We would have policed ourselves on that. If we found somebody was doing it, we would have taken care of it ourselves. The job was bad enough as it was. We didn't need that crap going on. That was all of us. So there's never any sign of it. I mean, we're, we're notorious for drinking and partying and having a good time after work and all that. But that was just for us to survive more than anything. Divorce rate was incredibly high down there. That was just a fact of life. Like not good.
1: Do you miss the adrenaline or those days at all?
2: You You know, I do sometimes I do not. all. I know people that retire do from my last day on the street to the, when I retired was six, six and a half years because I was running the union for those six years, I never really missed it because I was so busy. And it just, I, I stayed busy once I retired. Sometimes sit back. Sometimes I wonder how we survived it. Like, how did, how did we get to this point in our lives, like going through all that back then? So,
1: well, Dad, thank you so much for telling me more about it. I love hearing about this stuff. And I know my friends even love hearing these stories. And I'm excited to get it out there and have you know, to hear I it too.
2: I, I know the people are reaching out to you running this podcast. And I've had a lot of my buddies I worked with said, listen, you got to start talking about war stories. You got to start talking about this and that. It's important. People like to hear that.
1: Because it's a side of Toronto that a lot of people don't see.
2: It's a side of law enforcement. And it's it's history. It's way it went, way it happened. Call us what you want. But we had a very low crime rate back then. <laughs> and so it, something worked. Uh, you know, I'm all for locking them up. You want to make sure person doesn't commit a crime again and keep them in jail for a long time things have changed but you know what we should do is at some point get people on that can talk about what's going on today on the streets
1: of course and anyone who wants to reach out to be on the show to talk about it to start up a conversation about it
2: reach out info at copfather.com leave maddie a message and we'll go from there but i enjoyed this i enjoyed talking to you about it it was nice uh, you've heard you've heard it you've witnessed it
1: Mm-hmm, exactly when the,
2: when the coppers come over to the house you hear it Also, it's 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 good to talk about
1: it is thank you so much for having me on
2: thanks maddie <laughs> thanks everybody we'll talk to you soon
0: caesar's sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with caesar's rewards